Hello, my name is Lauren Layfield and this is Your Next Podcast, the show that podcast fans everywhere have been waiting for. The show I've been listening to and want to share with you this week is just brilliant. It's by Novel and it's called The Godmother. It's the story of Eunice Carter, the first black woman to become a prosecutor in America and the woman responsible for bringing Lucky Luciano, one of American history's most notorious mobsters, to justice. Like many black women who changed the course of history, her story has been largely forgotten. That is, until now. Novel. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode contains difficult themes and violence. The Manhattan Courthouse is surrounded. There were over a thousand people who showed up outside the courtroom. They had snipers on the roofs in Foley Square. They had police officers with riot guns in the hallway. Inside courtroom 148, smoke-stained shades do all they can to block out the sun. And any industrious looky-loos hoping to get a peek inside. And who could blame them? At the time, it was called the trial of the century. It really was national news. Men in dark suits crowd every available seat. The entire gallery during the trial was full of press. Their hats rest on their knees or turn in their hands. Some fidget, some slouch. Others sit ramrod straight. Everyone is focused on the scene in front of them. A man with a carefully groomed mustache walking confidently toward the stand. He was very aggressive and very ambitious. That was his personality. Dewey loved being in the spotlight. Thomas E. Dewey, famed investigator of the crime syndicates casting a menacing shadow across America. How do you take this random mayhem of violence and bring it under the law? Thomas Dewey enters the picture on that platform. His assistant attorneys shuffle papers. The courtroom leans closer. Towards the main attraction, the man facing Dewey on the stand. He is called sometimes the boss of bosses. Slender, slightly darker skin tone of Sicilian extraction. A suit jacket covers tattoos on the defendant's forearms. All symbols of luck. He took great effort to keep those tattoos out of the public light. At the time, tattoos were not exactly the upstanding citizen kind of thing. A silk shirt and gold watch mark him as a man with expensive taste. He wipes a handkerchief over his brow and meets the eyes of the courtroom. Everyone can see it. Charles Lucky Luciano, one of the most feared mafia leaders anyone ever knew, is sweating. Maybe he was flustered. Maybe the government really did put him on edge. He used to be so sure of himself. But now, things don't seem so certain anymore. Luciano really never stands a chance. He never should have taken the stand. That was the nail in Lucky's coffin. 
A few blocks from the courthouse, on the 14th floor of Manhattan's Gothic Woolworth Building, there is an office. Serviceable, tidy. Inside sits the woman responsible for putting Lucky Luciano on trial. Eunice Hunton Carter. 36 years old in 1936, bright eyes, the kind of quietly amused expression that makes you think she's laughing at a joke she can't share. She's New York's first black female prosecutor for the district attorney's office in Manhattan. This is the biggest case of her career. But as Lucky Luciano squirms on the stand, Eunice Hunton Carter is not there on center stage. Her name never appears in court transcripts. Why not? There would be no trial of the century without her. But Eunice's work on this case is far from over. Destiny has more in store for the trial's key players, uniting them forever in unexpected ways. Lucky, Dewey, and Eunice, all born within five years of each other, similar ages, similar ferocious ambitions. And their lives intersect in a courtroom for one month in 1936. But only two were given the opportunity to stand out. Lucky and Dewey will go down in history. Eunice was kept from the spotlight. Maybe it's not surprising that in 1936, a Black woman was not given room to share the stage. But nearly 90 years later, Eunice Hunton Carter still isn't a household name. And that is surprising. Or at least, I think it should be. Because recently, I've come to learn about Eunice Hunton Carter. And she wasn't just the engineer of this one defining moment in mob history. Eunice was a pioneer across all kinds of spheres that have come to shape America. Eunice was there, navigating worlds designed to hold her back, often leaving them transformed. So I've been talking to some people who have remembered her name, people who can help me tell her story. Eunice Carter was the spark that started the fire. A Black woman who took on one of the country's most notorious mobsters. I want more people to hear what she did, even more than her achievements. I want to understand who she was. It's not even just that not everyone remembers Eunice, but that people don't even believe she could have existed. She was really active in the Harlem Renaissance. Eunice ran for office. People thought she was going to win. She didn't back down in an argument. This is a straight shooter who will say something and mean it. But I think she was guarded. I did wonder if she felt stifled. All around us today, from schoolrooms to halls of legislation, Black American history is being erased. Remembering Eunice Hunton Carter feels more urgent than ever. But is that even possible when so many years of erasure and forgetting lie in our way? I want to find out, to try to put Eunice Hunton Carter back in the spotlight. And I'm going to ask first Mrs. Eunice Carter to tell us some of the things that she has on her mind, Mrs. Carter. Well, Mrs. Roosevelt, I have to agree and our association agrees with what Dr. Malik just said. We are concerned more, though, with the implementation 
of human rights for all mankind. I'm Nicole Perkins, and from the teams at iHeartRadio and Novel, this is The Godmother. Episode 1, Atlanta. Nineteen twenty-four, Replica, by Eunice Roberta Hunton. New Big Sun scorched the treeless ribbon of brick red road. A breeze hot and languid stirred fitfully. Angry red dust rose in great puffs, only to settle back heavily on all who dared the road. And then, it passed. Long before I moved to New York and became a writer, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. This was during the 80s and 90s. And when it came time for me to go to college, I knew I wanted to stay in the South. I wanted the familiar soupy heat, the magnificent magnolia and oak trees. Schools in Atlanta were some of the first I applied to. The city was the place to be for American Black folks. Atlanta was about four hours away, the perfect destination for weekend trips and date nights for the Black bourgeoisie and those who wanted to be. It was where we went to shop for luxury brands that hadn't made it to Nashville yet. It was one of the top places in the country for Black people who wanted wealth and education without leaving the South. The Atlanta I knew about, a city that held so much promise for Black people, was shaped by the lives of those who arrived over a hundred years before. In 1865, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. But the Jim Crow laws of the late 1800s established a new form of segregation. And so, to foster their own success, Black people began creating communities, like in Nicodemus, Kansas, or Greenwood, Tulsa, and in Atlanta. Hundreds, if not thousands, of African Americans migrated from rural areas of the state and elsewhere to Atlanta. They saw it as a place where they could make a life for themselves. That was really the first phase of Atlanta being viewed as a, a mecca for Black America. The Huntons are among those drawn to Atlanta. William Alpheus Hunton Sr. and Addie Waits Hunton met in Norfolk, Virginia before moving there. William is 36, Addie 24. It's 1899 and they've just had a daughter. This was Addie's third pregnancy and a difficult one. They've already lost two babies. They aren't sure this child will survive. 
For the first few weeks of her life, William and Addie just call her Sugar. But she's strong, healthy, and once her parents are sure she'll survive, they name her Eunice. As Eunice's childhood begins, the Huntons are part of a thriving, regenerated Atlanta. They lived in the Auburn Avenue neighborhood. Auburn Avenue would become by mid-20th century what Fortune magazine called the richest Negro street in the world, not just in the country, but in the world. It's close to the white part of town and near Peachtree, the lively business district. I try to imagine Eunice as a child, watching brick buildings go up around her, holding her mother Addie's hands as they walk down newly paved streets. Eunice probably sees people from all walks of life, postal workers, seamstresses, accountants, reporters, bakers, tailors, hat makers. Whatever business that was needed by the Black community was provided by Black business people who catered to the needs of Black residents and also, in many cases, catered to the needs of whites. Off Peachtree, her family can do all their shopping, knowing they're supporting Black businesses, and that the money remains in this community, lifting some families out of poverty. In the city, the majority of Black people lived in poverty, as was the case in much of the South. But you had a strong, emerging Black middle class and upper middle class. And Atlanta became a magnet that drew these people who wanted to, of course, find wealth, but also wanted to aid in the uplift of the Black community. The house that the Huntons live in It's big enough to require a maid, a cook, and a gardener. I'd love to have a maid and a cook right now. (laughs) The Hunton family had a very nice home, like 12, 15-room home on Houston Street. Houston Street was where you had many prominent African Americans. I think they liked to have pleasant surroundings, but the most important thing to them was learning about the world, I get the impression that you would be surrounded by books, you'd be surrounded by bookcases. Unlike literally 99% of the Black community at that time, Eunice's parents have been to college. Her father, William, was really active in his job traveling through the South in the United States. He was gone a lot. William Hunton is the first Black secretary of the International YMCA trying to integrate and establish the YMCA for Black people. And Addie Hunton? She was a social activist in her own right, one of the founders of the National Association of Colored Women, and then eventually one of the founding members of the Council of Negro Women. Addie writes long articles and gives speeches in front of packed crowds. And her audience hears a message of responsibility how the first duty of Black women is to their homes, to focus on their families and children. And their next duty was to uplift the race. But Addie isn't really practicing what she preaches. Just like her husband, her career often takes her away from Eunice and her home. And as she begins to work with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, she starts taking even more trips away from her family. She, a lone Black woman, would travel 
to various cities in which there had been unrest, attacks on the black community, attacks on those who attempted to establish branches of the NAACP. These trips were dangerous journeys, especially for a black woman. I can only imagine the kind of responses she got from strangers. To me, it speaks to her determination and dedication, her passion to be more than what society expects. She went to explore, to find out, to gather evidence, to talk to those, to encourage individuals in those cities to establish the branches. And she was quite successful of it. She did so without fear. This makes me think of my own mother because she sacrificed her own ambitions for our family. She made sure to tell my older sister and I to do more with our lives. As much as she loved us, she wanted us to pursue our dreams. I wonder if Addie had similar talks with Eunice. Addie seemed to sacrifice her home life for her larger ambitions. At such a young age, did Eunice understand that sacrifice or was she resentful of it? Eunice's parents are trying to help build a world where Black people have rights and opportunities, a South where they can thrive, racial uplift. But not everyone is thrilled by that vision. As a small child, perhaps staring wide-eyed at a city being built around her, at her parents making waves in Black America, Eunice cannot possibly know that she is standing in the middle of a tinderbox. In July of 1906, Eunice Hunton is seven years old, and she's got a younger brother to keep her busy now, Alphaeus. They're about four years apart. But you know, she's doing what little girls do, probably wanting toys or trips to the candy store, maybe even the library. She's definitely not thinking about who's going to be elected governor, which is a campaign happening around her in Atlanta that year. That election is just a few months away. Both candidates are Democrats. Hoke Smith and Clark Howell, these were the owners, publishers of the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution newspapers, two separate newspapers at that time. And each of those newspapers wrote sensational and largely false stories on a daily basis. So these two white men are stirring up a lot of racist unrest and flat-out lying in order to make white Georgians afraid of the power of the Black vote, which, across America, is still just a few decades old. African Americans were also granted the right of citizenship. The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment guaranteed voting rights for African American men. And so when African American men were given the right to vote, declared citizens, it signaled to them a new day in terms of opportunities. And that threatened Smith and Howell, especially because when Black men did turn out to vote, they were not voting for men like them, men whose families had defended slavery. African Americans were able to garner a degree of political power. White Democrats like Smith and Howell were afraid of Black voting power. They um, considered African Americans an economic threat because they felt they were in competition against these Black businesses that were doing very well. 
At this point, as Atlanta heads into the 20th century, Black businesses are thriving, which is not what the country is used to. There are wealthy Black people in places like Tulsa and Charleston, but you have to go looking for them. In Atlanta, segregation is still everywhere, but those Black businesses exist side by side. So the growing prosperity of the Black community is unavoidable. Why should Black people have the same or better lives than the white citizens of Atlanta? It was during that time that the newspapers began to literally create stories that Black men were assaulting white women in an attempt to really fan the flames of racism, the leadership of the white power structure really pulling the strings and manipulating their constituencies. Meanwhile, at the Hunton home, letters arrive from both Addie and William Hunton from their work travels on the road. William revels in news of Eunice, how smart she is, even as a little girl. But still just seven years old in that summer of 1906, I wonder if she's picking up on the rising tensions. Does her mother hold her hand tighter when white men come by on the street? Do they have a code word in case they need to run? Whether or not Eunice understands what's happening around her, William and Addie have a crystal clear read of the situation. Black people were highly aware that something was about to happen. The Black community in Atlanta is now preparing for the worst. They clandestinely shipped in on trains weapons, arms, guns, so they could protect themselves. It's the evening of September 22nd, 1906, a week and a half before the Smith-Howell election. A Saturday evening, people were leaving work. People were coming into the downtown area to go to restaurants or the theater. People were going into the city to start work if they had night shifts or whatever. It may be the end of September, but summer in the South likes to linger, and Atlanta is a bowl of humidity. The streets were crowded, and the streetcars were crowded. It's also time for the latest edition of the evening newspapers to unleash their new fictions. The Atlanta Evening News on that day had just published an edition that screamed headlines about more attacks on white women, newspaper boys out in the street going extra, extra, extra. This was an extra edition of the Atlanta Evening News. It was timed to really spark the animosity that was already building up. They knew that there would be a number of people in the streets. Everybody black and white, are crowded together on the streetcars, bumping against each other on the sidewalk. It's hot. These newspaper boys yelling out, black man rapes white woman. People are irritated. The streetcars were supposed to be segregated. You can imagine at the end of a day when it's crowded, you had a long day at work, you don't really want to get up and give up your seat to somebody. People are getting in each other's faces. The animosity that sense of urgency had been building up. And then the violence starts. On the street, things get ugly fast. 
People said, we're going to kill every black person in sight. They didn't say every black person. They used the N-word. Whether it's a man, whether it's a woman, whether it's a child. They did not care whether that person was just simply trying to get home and get away from the crowd, or that person was taking a stand and said, I'm not going to let anybody intimidate me. They would grab that person, pull them off the streetcars, first of all, run them down if they were walking in the streets. Now it's the time to essentially rid ourselves of as many Black people as possible. Mobs of white men are now roaming around downtown Atlanta. The mob of terrorists grew to about 10,000 men and boys. They knew exactly where to go. Across the Peachtree Business District, straining with rush hour, they wreak havoc. There was a young black man named Frank Smith who was a messenger. And he was trying to get back to uh, wherever his office was in the Central Business District. They grabbed him. They murdered him. They threw one man off the Forsyth Street Bridge onto the railroad track. They pulled people off streetcars and beat them, killed them. It's nightfall now. This assault, this murder, this pillage continued. They dragged bodies of their victims to the base of the statue that still exists on Forsyth Street of Henry Grady. Grady was another white supremacist journalist. He was revered by white citizens in Atlanta in particular. A precursor to Smith and Howell. He was a symbol of what they were aspiring to achieve in terms of leadership, in terms of dominance of white Atlantans in the city of Atlanta and really Georgia and throughout the South. In the Atlanta night, the vicious crowd spreads out from downtown towards residential areas of the city. The terrorists were actually headed to the Auburn Avenue community. That's Eunice's neighborhood. Her home is right on the border between white and black Atlanta. There, the Huntons wait, trapped inside. They were in their home, looking out the window, and Mr. Hunton was ready to defend his family, defend his home against the rioters if necessary. I wonder where Eunice is at this time. Are she and her brother hiding someplace? Does she hear the crowd of angry men? Is she peeping through the shutters? At the last minute, the mob suddenly stops a few houses before her home. The ringleaders declare that homes in this part of town seem too nice for Negroes to live in. And so the mob moves on, bringing destruction and violence to someone else's door. So it moved east to what's called the Fourth Ward in Atlanta that's populated by working class and poor Blacks. This is thousands of attackers moving into that community to essentially destroy homes, kill people. The residents repelled the angry mob. They were also in their homes, weapons in hand, ready to defend themselves if the mob should get to them. The terror in Atlanta lasts for another three full days. Many, many more were killed. Eventually, 
Georgia's governor calls in the militia, and the violence in the center of the city starts to die down. No one really knows how many African Americans died. The estimate is between 50 to 100, and perhaps even more. And in many cases, the bodies were spirited away. They disappeared. People did not want their dead to be associated with the riot, because even though they were the victims, they feared that there would be consequences. The fallout of the attacks in Atlanta went well beyond those three days in late September. Even after the carnage and the murders, you still had the repercussions of the trauma of having experienced that. Atlanta could rebuild. It could become the place I would excitedly visit as a teenager many years later. But what about the idea of Atlanta? It had become a place that was no longer safe. It's clear Atlanta and its Black community would never be the same. Most people think about the Great Migration as being a movement of African-American men, women, and children from the rural South to the urban North. But you had variations of that. You had what occurred in the aftermath of the 1906 Atlanta Race Massacre, African-Americans moving from the urban South on North to the Meccas, to the big cities, where they felt They could be safer, even though for sure racism was present in the North. But they felt they would not be under the constant threat of assault that they were in the South. More than 5,000 Black people left the city as a result of the massacre. The Huntons never returned to Atlanta. When I try to understand the impact the events in Atlanta had on seven-year-old Eunice, I think back to a night I experienced in my own childhood, when my family home burned to the ground. I was 15, so a little older than Eunice, and the fire was an accident. But what I remember is not having time to grab clothes for my brother, so he was standing outside in his underwear. I remember that it took a long time for the fire department to show up, But my mother says they arrived quickly. It didn't feel like it. These kinds of events always change you in some way. I keep a full outfit and my purse near my bedside now, in case of emergencies. The details of the fire have softened in my memory, but the results of the night remain sharp. The Huntons joined millions of others in a great migration away from the South. Addie and William packed up their family for New York. Eunice may have been too young to know the full significance of what has happened, but Atlanta will stay with her. She'll later recall the proximity of the attacks of family members and write vividly about the Georgia she'd experienced all around her before the violence of that night made it disappear. For both Eunice and her little brother Alphaeus, Their experiences here would seem to shape how they approach their futures, albeit in very different ways. At the turn of the 20th century, America enters an era of transition never seen before or since. And in two bedrooms in Brooklyn, New York, 
in the winter of 1907, two children from two sides of the swell of that movement are asleep. One is an eight-year-old Eunice with her family, the Huntons, Addie, William, and her baby brother, Alphaeus, all arrived in New York for the next chapter of their lives just a few months before. But Black people escaping violent racism weren't the only people on the move during this era. Millions of new immigrant families are reaching U.S. soil, too, also looking for new chapters, many of them via New York. A few streets away from Eunice in Brooklyn that winter night sleeps a young Italian boy and his family. Lucky Luciano arrives in the United States as a young boy from the western coast of Sicily. Lucky is just 10 years old when he comes to Brooklyn. These two sleeping children aren't destined to cross paths just yet. They'll both awake to very different realities before their two paths come together. And soon, Lucky's family will be off again. This time, just a few miles across the Hudson, to Manhattan's Lower East Side. Lower East Manhattan is crammed with immigrants. At this point in time, it was predominantly Jewish and Italian extraction, all shoved into one tiny area of 10-story and more tenements. If you've seen films like Gangs of New York or Once Upon a Time in America, you can probably picture Lower East Manhattan at this time. Overcrowded, noisy, new people appearing daily in a neighborhood becoming known as Little Italy. Lucky's family has come to New York in the midst of what's known as the Great Arrival. Millions more Italian immigrants will relocate to the U.S., most from the south of Italy, escaping epidemics and natural disasters. Many are in Little Italy essentially looking for the same thing the Huntons are in their move to Brooklyn, a new page, fresh opportunities. But immigrants arriving in Little Italy instead find a disappointing familiarity, poverty, and a new threat too, constant suspicion. The ones already established, assimilated New Yorkers, Americans at large, viewed as a threat were these foreigners speaking these foreign languages with different religions. It wasn't an easy climb for those people to come up the ladder. Black upward mobility in cities like Atlanta was stopped in its tracks because of white fear and jealousy. Many immigrants ran into the same white supremacy in the form of xenophobia. But soon after arriving in Little Italy, Lucky, who at this point is still known as Salvatore Lucania, which has a nice ring to it, actually, shows he's not going to accept that this new reality is all American life can offer him. Very early on, he starts getting into trouble. He's kind of a rough kid. He's kind of a moody kid. Before long, Lucky's spending most of his days out on the bustling streets of the Lower East Side, playing truant from school and looking for action. Like many of his peers in Lower East Manhattan in the early 20th century, coming from poverty 
you know, it's the same old story, but very true. They wanted more. I picture Lucky and other neighborhood kids dodging the crowds, taking chances. He begins pickpocketing. He begins extorting younger kids for protection money, stealing kids' lunch money. Deprived of the opportunities available to wider society, they're responsible for their own education. By the time he's a young teen, he has dropped out of school. Both his parents and the uh, state of New York have sent him to truancy school, but doesn't work. While Lucky has been finding his way to truancy school, Eunice, with her college-educated parents, has been shown a very different path, where education leads to success. First, she's taken away from Brooklyn to live in Germany with Addie and Alphaeus, while William remains on the road, traveling with his career. Eighteen months later, Eunice is back and at one of the best schools for Black students in New York. And then, on again, to become one of the first Black women to attend the prestigious Smith College. With her parents' example, she has a path to respectability and to success that Lucky just doesn't have— even with the monster of racism keeping her from certain avenues. So while she's in class, learning how to become the exception to the rule in order to get ahead, Lucky Luciano continues his education in a very different way. He, like many of his peers, changed or altered their names to be more easily pronounced or more Americanized. He went with Luciano, and even still, there were people had a difficult time pronouncing it. He finally changed it to Lucky. Keep it simple. He learns how to circumvent the rules. Luciano gets involved with the Five Points gang as a teenager, selling drugs. Lucky did have some jobs. He worked as a hat delivery boy, but he was pinched at age 16 for delivering a hat box with heroin in it. This would be Lucky's only arrest for the next two decades, but it's a significant one. With a record, he is now prevented from entering many so-called respectable trades. The die has been cast. And soon, Lucky ends up under the wing of some of the era's underworld leaders. He's already been mentored by financier Arnold Rothstein for a tutelage in organized crime. But there's still nothing here to suggest the notorious gangster America will be reading about in newspaper headlines in the coming decades. Even less so that he and Eunice will somehow connect through the world of vice and crime. With her Smith College education and her parents' legacy behind her, She's far from that life. For all her experiences and advantages, by the time America reaches the 1920s, Eunice is kind of separated from the realities of average Black American life. But that's about to change. Because Eunice is headed uptown, towards Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance. By the 1920s, Harlem was referred to as being the capital of the Black world, also known as the Mecca. Eunice's education can only shield her for so long. She's about to discover a world that was much more familiar to Lucky Luciano than it was to her. Black Harlem was not wealthy or elite, as in other parts of the country. 
the majority of the black community were impoverished and struggling. Much of what we know about Eunice's childhood comes from her parents' letters, sent to each other and to friends. It's a frustrating distance to observe her from. But by the 1920s, Eunice begins writing her own story, very carefully. And in doing so, she also changes American history. That chapter of her life too often ends up as a footnote in someone else's story. And frankly, that's a shame. Eunice's life deserves more than a quick skim. That's coming up in episode two of The Godmother. On episode one of The Godmother, you heard... Marilyn Greenwald. I'm a professor emerita of journalism at Ohio University, and I'm the author of five biographies, including one of Eunice Hunton Carter. My name is Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, and I am a tenured professor of Africana Studies at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a native Atlantan, and so that sparked curiosity in me. You know, what are the stories that I should know that I don't? And I wanted to learn those stories and share that history. I am Claire White, and I am the Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas, uh, which kind of gives me a, a leg up in that, in that regard. Although the number of organized crime groups that we've had in our city certainly will never rival a city like New York. My name is Christian Cipollini, and I am an author and a historian with a specialty in the fields of true crime, organized crime, and cartel history. My name's Leah Carter. I am Eunice Carter's great-granddaughter. Her son, Lyle, is my dad's father. Eunice influenced my grandfather, and he influenced my dad, and my dad influenced me. Not that I have a grand unified theory of that, exactly. The Godmother is produced by Novel for iHeartRadio. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Godmother is hosted and written by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producer is Leona Hamid. Additional production from Adjua Jima Brimpong, Ronald Young Jr., and Zayana Youssef. Our editor is Adjua Jima Brimpong. Additional story editing from Max O'Brien and Maithili Rao. Our researcher is Zayana Youssef. Additional research from Mohammed Ahmed. David Waters is our executive producer. Field production by Tanita Romani and Palace Shaw. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander. Our score was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Parker. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Production management and endless patience from Cherie Houston, Sarah Tobin, and Charlotte Wolf. Fact-checking by Findel Fulton and Danya Suleiman. Story development by Madeline Parr, Jess Swinburne, and Zayana Youssef. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Special thanks to Leah Carter, Stephen Carter, Angela J. Davis, Andrew Fernley, Marilyn Greenwald, Sandra Lebedee, Catherine Godfrey, Nadia Mady, Amalia Sortland, Sean Glenn, Neil Krishnan, Julia Bromberg, Katrina Norvell, Carly Frankel, and all the team at WME.
Novel. Oh, I do love it when stories like this one are uncovered and people take their rightful place in history. You can find The Godmother wherever you are listening to this show. Once you've tapped follow for The Godmother, don't forget to do the same for this show too so you can find your next podcast. All my recommendations from the whole series will also be on Podcast Rex at www.podcastrex.com. That is www.podcastrex.com.